Well, a couple months ago, I was listening to a conversation between Russell Moore, who is a Baptist author and, and editor at Christianity Today, and uh, Malcolm Geit, who is a, uh, is a poet and a pastor in the Anglican Church. And their talk featured all kinds of topics that I had very little knowledge and expertise in. They talked about quantum physics. They talked about some of the interpretations, the ancient interpretations of the transfiguration in John's gospel. All things are interesting but mysterious. But the one thing that they covered to me that seemed the most mysterious and the most elusive was the topic of poetry. Now, I'm willing to bet that few of us, if any, like to sit down at the end of a long day and kick up our feet and pour a cup of tea or coffee or whatever you drink and open up a big book of poetry. I doubt that anybody here does that. I know I don't. Now, many of us will like to read novels or, or mystery or sci-fi stories, or we might like to read biographies or historical works, um, but few of us like to read poetry. Now, my question is, why is that? I'm sure we've all heard poetry that we found striking or moving before, but poetry is not passive reading, is it? It's not light reading. It's not something you do um, when you've had a long and stressful day. You don't sit down to work through a poem. A good poem sometimes can feel like a math equation, I think, and as a person that doesn't like math, meaning that it takes time and thought to work through it. It requires our attention, our imagination, our reflection, and poetry does not unlock its secrets very easily to us. It takes reading aloud sometimes, or, or often it takes repeating and going over several lines, comparing the rhyming structures, the meter, all that stuff. And as Malcolm Geith tells us, and this was the maybe disillusioning thing for uh, wannabe poetry readers, is that sometimes it takes years to really understand what a poem is getting at. Now, the payoff for such a commitment, and it is a commitment, is that through a long time of reading and thinking and meditating, truth and beauty and goodness can really be revealed in a meaningful way. Uh, a poem long meditated upon can uplift the soul and give us courage and wisdom and hope. And there is just something so fundamentally human about poetry. And it's why that uh, in this conversation, he pointed out, Malcolm Guy pointed out that children, some of the first things they learn to speak are nursery rhymes. They, they memorize things that sound alike, that are sing-songy. In fact, when they're first talking, they kind of talk in tones and vowels and they, they speak with a sort of, you know, a, a poetic uh, babbling. They communicate that way before we even learn how to speak in sentences and through prose or anything like that. And of course, we know that people at the end of their life, I'm sure you've heard studies about this or seen videos, people at the end of their life that their mind is failing them and they can't remember who their own family is, you put on a, a record from when they were a teenager and all of a sudden they can sing every word. They remember all the rhymes, the patterns, the meter. There is something about poetry, about song, that just communicates deeply to us. It's one of the first ways that we encounter truth. You know, this is why I think when we hear a good hymn or, 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 or read something that is poetic and, or, or we just hear maybe a good bit of writing or something like that, it can make us emotional and we're not even sure why. 
because there's just something um, that we can understand, even if we can't articulate why it's important. Poetry works as a form of communication in that way. And that's why I believe that the scriptures are so rife with poetry. Now, it's not poetry in the, the, the sort of rhyming sense that we're used to, because we're reading this as a translation of its original Hebrew and Greek. So sometimes the translators can easily, you know, can turn a phrase or make something rhyme, but sometimes in order to keep the, the meaning intact, they can't easily do that. And so we miss a lot not being able to read in its original language, but it should be clear still by the way scripture is written and the language we can read it in that this is a book that has many, many, many poetic flourishes and memorable patterns. That is intentional. God writes and communicates to us as has his, uh, Timeless truth in that way. It's not, this book is not just a series of laws. It is not just a bunch of theological statements. It is stories and it's songs. That is the majority of what is in our Christian Bible. And nowhere do I think that is an intentional feature and more important for us to see than in these first 11 chapters of the first book of the Bible. Now, I think one of the greatest misunderstandings that we have about the Bible, especially in these chapters, has to do precisely with us misunderstanding their poetic and song-like nature. We have a tendency, I think, as modern people, as people that live on this side of history, to read these stories with no uh, ear for their artful images or their theological patterns. We kind of read the Bible like we might read a newspaper, where we're just looking for pure fact and um, uh, proposition. We're just looking for uh, the who, what, when, where, why, how statements of it. But, you know, God works to that way of reading Scripture, but you miss so much crucial ideas and so much beauty when we just kind of read it in that way. And so often in our culture, people do read it that way. And when they do, they get into arguments about it um, as if they're debating, you know, from different perspectives. Like if they were at an event and everybody saw uh, one event happen and they saw it from these angles, they, they debate on who saw it the best, who could accurately describe uh, what happens the, the clearest. So we get hung up on arguing the details that Moses and the, the, the people after Moses, we think probably some along the way, some people came in and added some details here and there. We'll see that in places like I think, um, um, this is a little bit outside of our, uh, uh, out of our range of scripture, but in Genesis 14, I think it talks about Abraham marching up to the land of Dan. Well, Dan is one of his, great-grandchildren. Now, that land was not called Dan, and so, and that was not an area that, or when we find out Abraham is from Ur of the Chaldees, that's referring to the Persians that didn't even exist at that point. So somewhere along the way, um, kind of in a study Bible sense, Israel's priests and scribes added little helpful details like that to us. But Moses, nor those people, uh, none of them wrote about these things in such a way that we would uh, be able to exhaust all of the meaning of what we're going to find. And uh, when we get hung up on arguing about what they meant by or, or, or what was the exact scientific method behind this or what exactly what place they're referring to or these things, 
we can kind of miss the forest for the tree. So, for instance, here are some things that Genesis 1 is not interested at all in telling us. Moses never cared for us to know about this. He does not care that we know the exact age of the earth. He just doesn't. He doesn't care if we know where the precise location of the Garden of Eden is. So there are things happening here that are mysterious and we just don't know. And if we get hung up on those details, we get hung up on the wrong things. Uh, Moses does not care what we think about the the genetic makeup of Adam and Eve and their descendants and so on. That's just not something that he's interested in. And I think it sort of betrays our enlightenment-soaked rationalist minds that we are so insistent on knowing those things. <laughs> that we skip over the big that God created, and he created human beings, and this was the purpose. We miss that for those little minor details. And you know what it can be like to be around people that when you're talking about something, and they can be really pedantic about, you know, they, they, uh, they're really focused on things that don't matter. That's, that's really... That's really difficult to... And Jesus deals with that with the Pharisees all the time. That's not what we're here to do tonight. What we need to see is that Genesis 1 through 11 is the story of God and humanity, and it is given to us not as a journalistic historical account, although it contains historical detail. It is not given to us as a, a, as that kind of account because it is given to us as a, as a work of theology with poetic images and, and literary patterns in place. So Genesis 1 through 11, again, is not pure journalistic history, but neither is it simple figural mythology. That's the other kind of ditch that people get into. Well, they'll say, well, clearly, um, you know, there is some theologizing, there's some uh, uh, some, there is some poetic stuff happening here. So this is, uh, so this is just Israel's mythology, like the Enuma Elish for the Babylonians or the Book of the Dead for the Egyptians. It's, it, or, you know, the stories of the, um, the Iliad and the Odyssey for the ancient Greeks. This is pure mythology, none of it's real. No, that's, that's the other error that people fall into too. So our goal for us in this Bible study will be to help kind of start maybe some of that detox process. Because again, what's happened so often in popular culture, and even in a lot of uh, ministries and stuff like that, is that we get hung up on these fruitless controversies. And instead, when we should be getting back to the mystery and the wonder and the truth and the power of God's story of humanity and their salvation. That's really what we should be focusing on. So in order to do that, we'll need to let the text confront us with what's actually there. And we'll need to become okay with not answering things that are not actually there in the text. So there will be things that, again, how certain things were formed, what people group went where, where did these people come from, how does this, those are just questions we can ponder, but we're not meant, I don't think, to take a dogmatic stance on. Um, well, before we actually get into our study of Genesis 1, I want to acknowledge, because there's kind of an elephant in the room, so to speak, um, uh, around these, specifically around these two chapters. 
Um, recently, there have been countless books written and so many ministries started whose sole focus is to insist on one or another interpretation of the book of Genesis and its events. So, for example, there's plenty of ministries out there that their whole deal is to talk about the literal six-day creation of the universe, the historicity of the global flood, and so on. And much of that, I understand, is because it's in reaction to, in the past 200 years, developing scientific theories that uh, seem to suggest that those things are impossible or did not happen. So, for instance, the theory of evolution has made the the six-day literal creation of the world. That's made it's impossible to reconcile evolution, uh, even a sort of theistic evolution, and having a six-day literal account of it's it's impossible to reconcile those things. Geographic formation, glacier formations make global floods unlikely in some people's view. And so some people say that if science is correct, if our modern understanding of science is correct, then these stories can't possibly be true. And if they're not true, then their logic is, well, then Scripture isn't trustworthy, and therefore God is not who he says he is, and therefore Christianity and specifically Jesus are totally false. So that's that's the jump in logic they make. But I think both of those groups can be very wrong, about crucial things. So, to be a traditionalist in terms of a six-day creation does not mean that you are anti-scientific understanding. If you believe that the world was created and this is six literal days and that's it, that doesn't mean that you are against the process of science. In fact, there are a lot of scientific theories that have been developed that we hold to be true that are being upended in major ways. Not even 10 years ago did we discover gravitational waves are a thing. Einstein predicted that almost, what, 70, 80 years earlier, but we couldn't prove it until seven or eight years ago. Um, just a couple of months ago, the, not the Hubble telescope, but the James Webb telescope found pictures of galaxies that they are, that they say are older or in places they shouldn't be. And it's rewriting how they understand a lot of the development of the universe. Science is not a static thing. It is constantly changing, which is why I think God is not so interested in revealing this, the creation story in scientific terms, because it's always changing. So, uh, um, the, the Hebrews thought that the world was literally on giant pillars. That this was this thing um, held in place by giant earth pillars and that there was a dome of water in the sky. That's how they understood in their scientific terms. God does not see it, and we know that's just scientifically untrue. We know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. No, even the most traditionalist Christian knows that that is not the way the world actually works. God did not see it as crucial or important to correct Israel's understanding of science to communicate how he created the earth. Do do we see how that's crucial? In other words, he didn't say, no, 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 Moses, it's not a dome of water in the sky, you silly simpleton. He just, it didn't matter. That was the point. It does not matter scientifically what Moses thought was happening. The point is, the sky was there and God made it. So that's what we need to come to about Genesis. 
think we need to relax and treat each other a little bit more respectfully about people that disagree about some scientific things. We'll get into more down the line. But uh, again, to be a traditionalist does not mean that you're anti-science. But on the other side, and this is probably the tougher pill to swallow in our circles, to read this creation account, this first creation account, with some figurative things in mind. To read this and think, well, this is true, but there's a lot of symbolism in here, just like there may be in the book of Revelation, does not mean that you don't believe and centralize the Bible's authority. So, I know it's popular for us to think in such black and white terms, but Kent Hughes is very important here. He, you know, he's an evangelical pastor and commentator, and he gets, he gives a list of notable saints that did not interpret Genesis 1 as a literal six-day creation period. And some of these dudes, if they were alive today, would be 1,800 years old. So it's not a modernist thing to say, you know, and, and these were people that were much closer to the Hebrew culture, much closer to the language. So here's some important figures that did not interpret this as a literal six-day creation. They believed that God created, that everything in here is true, but it had. It, they did not try to figure out what the symbols and the poetry and all of it meant. They just knew it was true. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, a Puritan. We all know Puritans are famously, everybody likes to call Puritans the the, the unfun fundamentalist, Puritan William Ames, the great 19th century defenders of the faith that were pushing back against the, the encroaching liberal theology. I don't mean that in a political sense, but in sort of a, a theological sense. People like Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, or even more t- prominent 20th century people, J. Gresham Machen, Donald Gray Barnhouse, John Stott, Francis Schaeffer, people that we would love for, if they were living today, to come here and preach and teach, and we would accept them in full or be taught by them. And they didn't believe in the six-day literal creation account. Again, that does not mean they didn't believe this. They just thought that God meant something different by it. Now, don't let our divided age deceive you. People for whom Jesus died can and do interpret the Bible differently, and they are not an enemy of the gospel. we got to get more comfortable with that. We've gotten to a point where people that think differently about baptism or creation or anything, I mean anything, is even if they're secondary, tertiary uh, doctrines, they're, they're, they're not just, not that they're wrong, but they're heretics, or they're evil, or they're satanic. A lot of language like that in our culture today. But I want to remind you of a New Testament story. In chapter 9 of Mark's Gospel, I'm going to just read this to us very quickly. John said to him, being Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, but we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. In other words, he wasn't in our group. He was working for you, but he was not in our group. What does Jesus say? Well, call down fire on him. He says, don't stop him, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. 
that passage of Scripture has helped me so much in recent days to look at people who are not with us, but are prophesying and teaching and giving cups of water. In other words, they're giving doctrine and they're giving benevolence in the name of Jesus. They belong to Jesus. He knows them. I may not know them. And that is their business and his, not mine. So when it comes to these things, we're going to have people in our life that are staunch defenders of this way, the traditionalist way. We're going to have people that uh, understand these things more metaphorically or figuratively. And they're going to love Jesus just as much, if not more, than we do. And we are going to pray for all of them and trust that the Lord will work through them. That's how we're going to respond to it. So we're going to put those debates out of our mind, and we are going to focus not on what we can't know, but what we can know. So I'm going to focus specifically on this first of two creation stories, because this is another interesting thing. I think Genesis 2 is another creation story that's taking, that is also true, that's from a totally different perspective. We'll get into that next week. That's a teaser for what I mean by that for next week. But this is the first creation story that we have. But without further ado, let's actually get, because we've been going for about a half an hour, and we haven't even touched the Bible yet. So let's get into it. So the Hebrew Bible opens up with a little title and a subtitle, if you will. Genesis is called Genesis. That's the uh, uh, coming from the Greek word. But the, the, the Hebrew word is bereshith. And that is a word that just means in the beginning. And you'll notice that the first words in the Bible and it's just one word in Hebrew, is in the beginning. And so verse 1 reads, in the beginning, there's your title, but here's the subtitle, and here is what you need to know about what comes in this chapter, and we're supposed to know for these next, I think, 11 chapters. So in the beginning, title, God created the heavens and the earth. There's your subtitle. That's what this chapter is about. And that is the point of this opening chapter of Genesis. God is God, and he is the creator. That's what this is about. It's not about how old the earth is. It's not about Adam and Eve. No, it's not about that. It's God as creator. So how does God create? Well, the details of his supernatural speech order the natural world. God speaks and things come into existence. Now, it doesn't tell us that God speaks and then suddenly hydrogen atoms start to appear and uh, and they collect with oxygen and there's a catalyst. It does not get into that. He's not concerned with that. God speaks and things happen. He intervenes metaphysically in order to bring physical things into existence. So those things interest us. How did this happen? How did it unfold? Bible doesn't care how we understand that. What it does care that we understand is that God is the creator, not about the mechanics of how he creates. So that's verse one. Now let's look at verse two. And again, verse 2 proves that science is not a subject of the story because we read, now the earth, okay, in the beginning there's God, all of a sudden there's an earth, it was formless and empty, and darkness was covering the surface of the watery depths? Where did that come from? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Whoa, 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 stop. Let's wait a second here. In the beginning, there's only God, and he's about to create the heavens and the earth, And at the very beginning of that, the chronology is that the Spirit of God, a spirit, is hovering over water and darkness. Now again, if we're trying to think of that scientifically, and let's think critically here. 
If we know that God created everything from nothing, because Paul reminds us that in Genesis 1, or uh, not in Genesis 1, in Colossians 1. He made everything, visible and invisible. It all comes from him. So, and we see that it isn't until day two that the oceans and the skies, and day three that the land is made, then what in the world is this talking about? This, we're not even on day one yet, and those things are here. In fact, how does God create light on day one if sun, moon, and stars aren't created till day four? What's that? Where's that light coming from? So, do you see the conflict here? And our scientific understanding, or our 21st, science, or 21st century scientific understanding, this doesn't make sense to us. But this is true. How that works, I don't know. But what this suggests is not that God is a liar, and it definitely doesn't suggest that Moses and the Israelites and everybody that went into giving us this story are idiots. That's not what that means. It suggests that we are in the realm of theology. And when we're in the realm of theology, we're in the realm of true things that are abstracted or uh, symbolic and not totally something that our physical time and space and material minds can easily comprehend. So when the ancients thought about existence, this will help us some too, I think, they didn't think the way that we did. When we talk about something existing, uh, that table exists. How do I know it exists? Because it's because it's, I can touch it. Uh, Superman doesn't exist because I can't touch super. He's just a, he's a character. He doesn't exist. That's how we think of things. You know, that is real. Uh, uh, but this is not. This building is real. You're real. This, that, the, that good cake is very real. And that coffee is real. But dwarves and goblins and elves and ghosts are not real because there's no historical precedent. That's how we think of things existing as material in the ancient world. Things existed if they had a function or purpose. So stay with me here. In the ancient mind, matter may exist. In other words, whatever that table is made out of may exist, but that table doesn't exist until it comes together to form what is a functioning table. So until God gives something purpose, it doesn't exist. It might have material substance, but it doesn't exist. That's the way they thought of this. And so if there is darkness and if there is water and they're not for any purpose, although they're materially there, they don't exist. That is how the ancients saw that. That is their philosophical framework uh, that is very hard for us to understand. So again, the Lord through Moses is not interested in giving us a scientific account here. He is simply explaining to us um, uh, that at one time, nothing existed except for him. So, now notice how this material is described in verse 2. So there's darkness, there's water, but the earth, the land, or whatever it is, is formless and empty. Those Hebrew words are very sing-songy. Uh, they're very rhymy. Tohu, vabohu. That means that they are unordered and uninhabited. 
So that's a poetic way to describe in verse 2 that darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. All throughout the Bible, we know that darkness and the depths of water symbolize death or non-existence. So again, the big idea here is that there is nothing. But then a surprising thing happens at the end of verse 2. In that nothingness, there's God. God's spirit is hovering. He is in the midst of that chaos and nothingness about to do something with it. His spirit, the Hebrew word is ruach, it literally means breath or wind, or metaphorically it can mean life. His life is existing in the middle of lifelessness. His order and his fullness exist in the disorder and the uninhabitedness of the world. Do you see that? Only God exists in non-existence. That's what we need to see. And what does the Spirit do? What does the divine breath and life do? He speaks, and order and existence begin to happen. Now, we all know that Genesis 1 shows us that God creates everything in these six days. He gives everything order and purpose over that time. But what we're less likely to see is that the text is actually patterned to show us how God addresses the fact that it is first formless and how it is secondly empty. The earth was formless. The earth was empty. The first three days, God gives the world form. And in the second three days, he, f- he fills that form up with inhabitants. So here's the problem. There's nothing and there's nobody in it. First three days, he creates something. Second three days, he puts things in it. You see that? So days one through three, verses three through 13, are about forming time and space and matter. And days four through six are about filling up that time and space and matter with life. Okay. Now, each of these days, it's crucial for us to see, have one thing in common. Then God said, and he created. God is the creator. He speaks and these things exist, whether they are biological or just carbon forms, whatever. And again, all creations have God as their creator. He speaks to come into existence by his spirit. And then there's a second thing that we need to know about all of them, is that after he creates them, he says, this is good. He speaks, he makes it, this is good. That's the pattern we see over and over. Now, gosh, again, we're limited on time, so I'm going to try to boogie through this last part. But um, let's just look at this first set of creation days, the first three. So let's look first uh, at, uh, at day one, verses three through five. What does it say? It says that God speaks, and he says, let there be light, and guess what? There's light. And we read that light will rule the day, and dark will rule the night. Again, this defies our scientific understanding, because there's no sun, there's no moon. There's What does that mean? And there are no heavenly bodies. So what I think God is creating here, I think God, his divine light is creating time, I think. I, I, that's what I think this is getting at here. I don't know that for sure, but God creates light. And then we see um, uh, uh, a repeating pattern. There's evening, and then there's morning, and that's the day. But I think something clever is happening here, because notice it doesn't say there is morning and then there is evening. That's the way that we think of a day. There's morning and then there's evening, that's the day. 
is backwards. Why is that? Well, I think it's for this reason. I think this. Because there's evening. That's When is the evening? That's when it's dark outside, right? That's what starts. The world starts in darkness, in evening. There's chaos. There's darkness. But then God speaks and light happens and then there's morning. That's why, that's why I think it's ordered that way. So there's evening. There's nothing. God speaks. There's something. There's morning. Evening, morning, there's that day. So I think day one, time is established by our timeless God. Day one. Second day, this verse is six through eight. God speaks again, and he says, let the waters, again, <laughs> the, I, the assumption is that there's some kind of, not let there be water, but there, the waters are here. How we understand that, I don't know. But the important thing is, let the waters be separated. The waters above and the waters below are separated with an expanse between them. And the expanse becomes uh, called the sky. Now, again, in the imaginations of the ancient Israelites, above the sky is a dome of water. When it rains, that dome begins to leak and water comes down. That's what happens with the flood. And below us, below even the earth, um, is water below. It's the deep, dark uh, abyss. So there's a dome water above and a dome water below. Uh, so past the water dome in the sky, well, there's the heavens. And past the water dome below, well, that's the abyss. Some people think in the biblical imagination that symbolizes hell too. But the Spirit speaks, and these waters of chaos that are only their darkness and the abyss, suddenly those chaos waters are divided into, into the heavens and to the sea below. And again, God now has not only created time, but now he's creating and ordering space. Evening, morning, day two. Okay, third and finally in this first set, God separates the abyss waters so that the land can appear. He gathered, we, the, 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 um, uh, 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 the poetry is that he gathers all the waters into one place and so that land can rise up out of the sea. And so the land appears and God calls it earth. And the abyss waters, those kind of just, you know, chaotic things, whatever's happening, well, they're organized, and so those are the seas, those are the oceans. And yet again, God calls his creation and his ordering. He calls this what? Good. So we have time, and we have space, and now we have land and sky and sea. There is your order, and that's your forms. You see that? That's the background. Now, in a minute, we're going to have subjects in the foreground. But then something extra happens this day. A little bonus act of creation, Tim Mackey says. God creates actual life, vegetation. That's the first form of life to exist. Verse 11 tells us that God said it, and there were seed-bearing plants, fruit trees with variety and kinds, all implying that these things are self-sustaining, that they, they grow and then they can give seeds and those seeds can grow. And, and so there's, there's life. There's self-sustaining, self-generating life. And God calls this good. Then evening and morning, the third day. Okay, so the formlessness is now formed in these first three days. You can now no longer say the world is formless. It's formed. But it's still empty. But days four through six, God is going to fill it up. Now, here's the cool thing. Day one and day four 
mirror each other. Or day two and day five mirror each other, and day three and day six mirror each other. So let's look at that. So day four, verses 14 through 19, God creates a different kind of light we read about. These are the heavenly bodies which fill up the empty heavens. So they are the stars, the sun, and the moon. And all of them, we read, are meant to give light uh, and, and to help us to tell the time. So uh, God has created time before, and now he's going to help his creatures be able to understand time by giving us these things. So now the logic is that the form of time on day one is complemented by the the filling of heavenly bodies now. And notice that these heavenly bodies have a purpose. God says that they are to mark day and night. If we didn't have a sun or a moon, when you think about it, if we didn't have stars, we would not be able to tell any time is moving. We wouldn't be able to... I mean, that helps us to see what the time is is a construct. (laughs) It's philosophical and weird as that gets. Um... But they also help us to mark not only just day and night, but seasons and even years. And then they also give light. So they illumine the dark world around us. We know the sun has set outside. It's no longer in the sky, so it's dark. That's what happens when you don't have the light. The sun also, it doesn't say this here, but we know the sun also gives us warmth, which can sustain life for our world. Now, uh, real quick, I just I couldn't help myself throwing little bits of poetry in here. If we're going to talk about poetry of Genesis, we ought to have a few little poetic lines. Joseph Addison, who was the son of Lancelot Andrews, who you don't know who Lancelot Andrews is, he was one of the translators and compilers of the King James Bible. So the Bible that we still read today, Lancelot Andrews was on like the committee that oversaw that. And his son, Joseph Addison, um, wrote this, a poem talking about this. He said, The spacious firmament on high, with all the blue ethereal sky and spangled heavens, a shining frame, their great original proclaim. The great original being God, of course. So I just, I found that in my study, and I thought, I gotta throw that in there. But something else mysterious, I think, is going on here. Just, I'm gonna very quickly touch on this in verse 16. God has made two lights. He says one to rule the day and one to rule the night. We know what he's talking about, sun and the moon. Now, again, I think that's a poetic way of saying that uh, that these are the two heavenly bodies that we most rely on, the sun and the moon. We know now, with our scientific understanding, how the sun helps, you know, creates, I mean, helps you know, photosynthesis in plants. The moon works with the, the tides of the earth. We, we kind of understand the symbiosis of that better. Um, so... We uh, we know that those are important, but he says that they rule the day and they rule the night. Now, I think something is going on here in the imagination of the biblical authors that suggests that in some mysterious ways, the stars and the heavenly bodies also symbolize the angelic beings and powers that we read elsewhere in Scripture that have some authority and have some rule over the nations and the and the planets, and they, they have sway in this world as spiritual entities. For instance, Satan, we come to find out later in Scripture, his original name, his title was Lucifer, the light bringer. He is the bright and morning star. Was Satan a literal star? No. But what that suggests to us in the mind, in the theological imagination of these people, 
is that angelic beings in heavenly bodies have some kind of mysterious connection. What that connection is, is very difficult to discern. But there is something going on there. And so, in fact, Kent Hughes suggests that Moses won't even mention the sun or the moon by their names because these people, he's probably writing this and compiling this and getting these stories together as these people are just coming out of Egypt. And Egypt has a big cult to the sun and the moon. So he's not going to name them because in the ancient imagination, the sun, the moon, and the, and, um, and the stars are all connected to gods and angels. There probably is some truth to that. Not in the way that they're gods above the god, but the lowercase gods, the angelic beings, the demonic beings. Again, there's mystery in that. I can't explain it all to you. But he wants his people to see that God is the creator, not the sun or the moon or the stars, even though they have some rule and reign. God is the true light. Yahweh is the original source of light. And the planets and the stars and the moon only reflect his glory that he gives them. So now the heavens are filled. They were, you know, the skies, the heavens didn't have anything in it, but now they are filled. I mean, there's pictures that are coming out. This is such an exciting time if you're into astronomy, because this James Webb telescope is taking mind-blowing pictures of things that are happening unfathomably far away. There are pictures that they can take in various color spectrums that show that instead, when you point that telescope and a faraway point in the sky, to us it just looks like black with a few white points. But if it can go far enough, it is just only color and light. I mean, the, the universe, the, the, the heavens are unbelievable. They're populated now. The heavens are filled. Okay, day five. We've got to keep moving. Verse 20 through 23. Now, this corresponds to day two. What happened in day two? God divided the waters. There's the water above. There's the waters below. There's the sky. There's the sea. Those were formed, but now they need to be filled. So what does God do? He creates fish to fill the seas. And he creates birds to inhabit the skies. And again, he says, this is good. The waters above and the waters below are filled. They're filled with eagles and squids and finches and crocodiles and probably pterodactyls and pliosauruses. <laughs> Although we don't know much about those anymore because they're extinct. Now this is interesting. This is the first time that God blesses in the Bible. He blesses these creatures that are sentient, that are, are just meaning that they, in some sense, know they exist. Now we, at our house all the time, want to know, what does our cat actually know? Does she know that she's a girl? Does she understand that she's a cat? Does she understand that we're humans? Probably not. But she's, unlike our our spider plant over in the corner, it doesn't have any awareness of its, its existence. Creatures do. God blesses them to be fruitful and multiply. So you can see that even as he's starting to describe life, he's giving them more authority and blessing and more. We're moving into something important here. Again, a little bit of poetry. Gerald Manley Hopkins, who is a Catholic poet, writes about especially the, the oceans and the skies being filled. He says, Glory be to God for the dappled things, for skies of coupled colored as a brindled cow, for the rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim, 
Fresh fire coal chestnuts falls, finches wings, landscapes plotted and pierced with fold and fallow and plow. He, oh gosh, he is such a great, he's just a very sing-songy poet. Um, so that's day five. But finally, let's get to day six. These are verses 24 through 27. And again, this mirrors day three. What happens on day three? We get land, we get vegetation. And now that land and those trees and those swamps and those deserts and those mountains need inhabitants. And so God speaks and he creates every kind of animal. Livestock, that is, that in the ancient, that's an ancient term for all the domesticated animal. That's the goat, the sheep, the cows, and to me, most importantly, that's the, the cats. And maybe for some of you, that's the dogs. Uh, he, cr- uh, crawlers, he's creatures that crawl. Those are the small little kind of uh, animals. Those are the rodents and the reptiles, the little things that live in trees and holes and under rocks and stuff. But also the wildlife, that indicates the large creatures. Those are the elephants and the lions and the wolves and the elk. And again, he says this is good. So he's created the form, the skies, the seas, the land. He's given, he's put the heavenly bodies and the angels. He's put fish and, and birds He's put cattle and wildlife. It's filled. It's no longer empty. And it reminds us of that William Blake poem, I'm sure many of you have heard, where he just talks about the beauty of animals, specifically through uh, the tiger. He says, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In other words, only God could make something as extravagant and majestic as a tiger. So, Remember, day three had two creative acts. It was the land, and then it was the vegetation. Well, day six, again, mirrors day three. It's got two creative acts. It's got animals, but who else does it have? It has human beings. But humans are different than anything that God has created before. And he doesn't say, let there be, like he says with everything else. He says, let us, meaning Father, Son, and Spirit, Christian theologians believe, and some People think that he's also speaking to the angelic bodies in his divine counsel. That's a whole other you know, uh, range of study we can't get into right now. But he's saying, he's speaking, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. The angels aren't like his likeness. The elephants are not like his likeness. Only humans are like his likeness so that they can rule the fish and the sea, the birds in the sky, the animals in the land. And so Moses gives us his own poem here, too. This is the first poem in the Bible. You might notice that it's kind of indented in a lot of your Bibles. Maybe not in the KJV, but most um, more recent translations do this. Here's the first poem in the Bible. We Again, we lose the, the poetry of it in English. but So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. The world has been formed and the world has been filled. But only humans, males and females, are the co-equals, the co-heirs, and co-priests to God himself. Uh, They are imprinted with his divine nature. If all of this is a portrait of God building his own temple, his own holy dwelling, well, then some theologians have said, well, man and woman are the, the idols that you put at the center. Not in the bad sense of like that we bow down to them, but they are the focal point of God's image. 
You know, in a temple, you'd put Baal in the center. That's the image of Baal, although Baal doesn't exist unless he's a demon in which he's not to be worshipped. That's another topic. But man, human beings, uh, men and women, male and female, are God's image in his temple. And he creates them and gives them life and calls them to gently subdue the earth, not to enslave it, not to exploit it, but to rule it like he rules with righteousness and love. Now, he gives these creatures, male and female, he gives them other creatures to rule, all the other animals. He gives them spheres to cultivate, the land, the seas, the sky, and he gives them the vegetation to eat and be sustained. They have everything they need. They have their tasks set before them, and they have a place in in which to do this. And so, in verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it wasn't just good, It was very good. Evening and morning, the sixth day. Now, unfortunately, tradition marks uh, this as the uh, as the last verse and of this chapter, and therefore the last of the of this story. But really, the way the, the the scripture works, the story works. It goes on to chapter two, verse three. So. Unfortunately, right out of the gate, I think the marking of the, the, the chapters, they already messed up chapter one of Genesis. So, uh, but again, that's just, uh, you know, that doesn't affect the truth of it or anything. I just think it would have been better if they would have moved that chapter back just three verses. So this is really the ending of the story, not again in, uh, chapter one, verse 31, but in chapter two, verse three. So we read that heaven and earth are completed. They're formed and they're filled. Chaos is defeated. Order reigns and God rules in its midst, life over death. Then what? What happens after that? On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Now, does that mean that God, who is immortal and eternal and omnipotent and omniscient and a spirit on top of all that, does that mean that he has to sleep or put Bengay on his muscles or kick up his feet and ice his swollen head? No, he's not resting in that sense. The idea of rest here is the same idea that the Israelites have a rest when he tells them he's given them a land that they can go into and rest in. That doesn't mean that they'll go into Canaan, that they'll go into the promised land and just sit on their derriers all day, every day. No, they have been given a place to rule and to reign in and and live normal life. That's what it means to rest. So when God rests, I think the image, the symbol that we've been given here is that he is he is. Resting in the sense that the world has been formed, the task is done, and now he can simply rule and reign over it. That's what it means to rest. There's no more work to do. Now God just has to live with this creation that he's made. That's the idea here. God has formed his temple. He's filled it with worshipers, and now he can rule over it. Now on the seventh day, Israel sat and rested also, but they actually did have to rest. But when they got to rest, what they could do is watch how God rests and rules over them. That's what they could do on the seventh day. But again, there are patterns that are being developed here. We have seven days of creation, 
Seven times does God call his creation good? There are seven words in that first Hebrew sentence. In the beginning, God created heaven. Seven words. And in this, in this last, these last three verses here, there are three lines in the original Hebrew that each contain seven words about the seventh day. Can you see that the authors are forming a pattern of God's creation and his completion? This is not accidental literature. This is the remarkable work of reflection of people on who God is, divinely inspired by God. So notice that the end of the seventh day, we're missing a phrase. There is no evening and there is no morning. Well, why is that? Well, it's because the work of the seventh day now continues in humanity. The seventh day continued in what we'll see next week, where Adam and Eve are given, okay, here's, here, you're in the land. You can, uh, work and, and, and be at, re- in rest in me as God, the ruler. Um, they are to multiply and subdue the earth. And that day is supposed to continue on. That age is supposed to continue on through them. Now we know the tragic story that they fall temptation and temptation to sin and uh, and usher in uh, chaos and, and death back into the world. But there is a new day that we read about in the New Testament. Now Jesus, you remember, was crucified and he was buried and he was resting in his tomb on what day? The seventh day, on their Sabbath. But he rose to begin his new work in us on what day? The first day. But in another another sense, it's not the first day. It's the eighth day. It's a new day. It's a new week. It's a new age in Jesus. And folks, we are just tapping in. We are just skimming the surface of the patterns and the poetry of Genesis 1 through 11. And we have so much more exciting work ahead of us. I've gone on far too long, so let's dismiss with a prayer. Lord, help us to meditate on these spiritual truths. Help us to contemplate the mystery of our faith, the holiness of your word. And in all these things, Father, point us to the founder and perfecter of our faith, your Son, our Lord Jesus. For it's in his name we pray by your Spirit's life-giving power. Amen.